Section One of The Black Cat, Volume Two, Number Five, February, eighteen ninety seven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Greg Giordano. The Black Cat, Volume Two, Number Five, February, eighteen ninety-seven, Section One, The Lost Paradise, by Gike Turner and T. F. Anderson. Early last spring, I made up my mind that there was a great call for a novelty in the line of vacations. The present attractions I decided were well enough for women and young people, but to have the chastened imagination of middle-aged men, the vacation season appeared more in the light of an annual martyrdom, which must be paid to cause of matrimony. What was needed by this most lucrative class of patrons was a complete novelty, and an opportunity for an entire rest. In my opinion, a hotel man should show imagination at other times than when making up his bill. Accordingly, I considered the matter for some time, and finally hit upon an idea which, it seemed to me, would appeal immediately to the most jaded appetite. This I at once proposed to a dozen of the most wealthy of my patrons, who, while skeptical about the possibility of carrying it out, promised to back me to any reasonable extent if I should succeed. Without delay, I started to South America to get a floating island. My idea, in short, was to secure one of those common products of nature in South American streams, and tow it into the ocean for a sort of private reserves. These islands, I calculated, being a tough wiry mass of interlacing roots would without a shadow of a doubt prove entirely seaworthy their construction of course could be strengthened and in the worst of storms provision could very easily be made for protection from the action of the waves by a series of oil ducts opening on all sides in short i had every confidence that the plan was entirely feasible and that its advantages would include a complete rest for the tired business man, a climate made to order, and every kind of recreation which it is possible for money to buy. In the beginning I had been led to believe that I should be able to pick up a good island at a nominal price on the Amazon. After a long trip through that river, however, I found nothing but some second-class, marshy-looking concerns, that did not at all answer my requirements. But as my guides assured me that they knew the identical spots where these islands formed and broke away from the mainland, I determined to go there myself, detach a sufficient area of the floating material, and make an island suitable to the wants of my company. Upon reaching the place, I was able, with the aid of a large force of natives, to carve out in a few months' time just the article I wished. When it was once detached and floating down the Amazon, I added in every way possible to the advantages nature offered. The groundwork of the island was surrounded and interwoven with steel cables, and braced with heavy beams, and in every way prepared to meet the strain of an ocean voyage. 
it was at this point that we met our first obstacle our plan being of course absolutely new to that part of the world it had not escaped the attention of the emperor of brazil there were rumors that he had complained bitterly to the american consul of what he said to call a nefarious scheme of land grabbing as i had purchased the land of a gentleman in whose grant it lay at a perfectly satisfactory price however i could not believe these reports and was naturally much surprised when on the trip down the amazon we were hove to by a brazilian man-of-war in the lower waters of the great river the representative of the emperor on board a very polite man spoke at length to me through an interpreter he was extremely sorry to interrupt the progress of our enterprise he said but it was entirely contrary to the policy of brazil to allow such a precedent as this to be established by us his majesty he said could never feel firm or really settled on his throne while his territory was being sliced off in this manner it was useless for me to assure him of the perfectly apparent fact that only a microscopic part of brazil could be sliced off in this way and that really the island was not mainland at all but mostly roots soon i saw of course that he had a claim and set to work immediately on the terms of an agreement which when presented proved entirely satisfactory according to this i signed a contract to acknowledge my island wherever situated as a dependency of brazil and to pay taxes as such to cover the whole matter i also took out a navigator's license from brazil under which to sail the island and agreed wherever possible to give the preference to brazilian labor this business completed we at once proceeded without other happenings of note to our first mooring place in the central atlantic being towed by a convoy of ocean steamers secured for the purpose our passage was a comparatively smooth one and the island behaved even better than we had expected in the ocean we stopped in a latitude agreed upon as far as possible out of the course of the atlantic liners at a place where we anticipated the climate would be everything we desired here according to agreement we were to be met on the second of july by the party who were interested in the venture by this time after months of incessant work we had made the island ready for its occupants in its fittings we were determined to have everything entirely novel the buildings equipped with every convenience of modern american civilization were made of bamboo somewhat after the japanese style which was perfectly adapted to the needs of such a climate and at the same time most picturesque at trinidad we had stopped and laid an asphalt drive completely around our property for the benefit of the millionaires who wished to bring their horses and we had also arranged a necessarily small but at the same time most complete porcelain beach for sea bathing near the buildings as to the servant question that was most unexpectedly solved by the discovery soon after we had started that we had broken off from the mainland of brazil together with the island a number of natives of the country at first we were at a loss what to do with them but finally we decided to train them as domestics and after some patient work we succeeded in making very passable ones out of them they were good-natured and fairly quick and 
dressed as they were, only in their breech-cloths, added much to the picturesqueness of the scene. In our search for novelties, even went so far as to secure an iceberg, towing it down from the upper Atlantic, to serve us for refrigerating purposes. We also fitted up, at great expense, a lover's retreat, a bridal veil falls, and a sunset rock. In the woods in the vicinity of the house, my experience as a hotel man teaching me that we must make these concessions to public sentiment at any cost. For several months our life on this island was ideal. My patrons were more than delighted. Most of them came in their own steam yachts, and made our island the headquarters for little towers about the ocean, in much the same way as a man who keeps his spawn drives out from a hotel in the mountains. The place was christened the Celestial Island, being, as was remarked, about as near heaven as a millionaire could hope to get. The climate was delightful. We lay in the borders of the Gulf Stream, and after a certain time we got in the way of drifting about with the currents according to the fancy of our patrons, our idea being to be borne along with the stream. Unfortunately, however, in this we miscalculated by not reckoning on the influence of the wind, and thus, not having on board any ship's instruments, we drifted entirely out of the stream. One morning we were awakened by a great bumping and scraping, and upon investigation discovered, to our annoyance, that we were on a shoal of some kind. Fortunately the weather was very calm, and there was no prospect whatever of a storm, so we did not alarm ourselves, figuring in a short time to draw off, with the assistance of the steam yachts on the floating end of the island. But in some way the rough bottom of the island had become fixed on ground, and our efforts seemed to accomplish nothing. This unforeseen delay proved disastrous to us. One morning, on getting up earlier than the rest of the islanders, according to my custom, in order to inspect my property, I was astonished to see a pompous official, in the uniform of the British Navy, superintending the work of two able-bodied sailors, who were boring a hole in our front step with an auger. All the persons were entire strangers to me. Hey, I said, what are you doing with my front steps? The fat man, after gazing at me disinterestedly for some time, remarked with grave emphasis, I am about to raise the British flag over this island, and lay claim to it in the name of Her Sacred Majesty, Queen Victoria. And who are you? I gasped. I am, sir, he said, Captain Hopkins, commanding Her Majesty's worship, the horrors which you see yonder. I looked offshore and observed the horrors lying about a quarter of a mile out from the shoals. A boat with its crew lay pounding up against my porcelain-lined bathing beach. This is an outrage, I cried. This island is mine. I have operated for months under a sailing license from the Emperor of Brazil. Your sailing license is nothing to me, said Captain Hopkins gruffly. The sailors had finished their carpentering and were preparing to erect a temporary flagstaff. You will at least admit, I said, that I occupied the island before you did. That, said the invader, has nothing whatever to do with the case. My action is merely formal. This island has been known and claimed by Great Britain for centuries. Upon my exclaiming that this was impossible, 
as I had arrived only that week. "'You are evidently a lunatic, sir,' said Captain Hopkins calmly. "'But whether you are or not, this island belongs to Great Britain. Its position was first, pointed out by Drake and the early navigators, who did not, however, stop to formerly lay claim to it. It was then lost sight of till the eighteenth century, when England made her first claim to it. This claim is indisputable. In Her Majesty's archives there are at least five different surveys, each showing that the island, though once claimed by the Spanish, is undoubtedly an English possession. In fact, there can be no doubt that the whole of the island is English soil, with the possible exception of sixteen rods on the eastern end, which was conceded by some of the earlier geographers to. The sentence was never finished. In the midst of it I had caught a glimpse of two sailors in the act of raising the British flag over my very doorstep, and had rushed upon them. The next moment I found myself under arrest, a prisoner of Great Britain, charged with insulting that country's flag. To the angry protests of myself and my guests that the celestial island was a floating island, my own property, and so out of his country's jurisdiction, Captain Hopkins replied only that at the proper time my plea should be duly investigated. But, he added, until that was proven, the island will be placed under British rule, while I, as a prisoner of the Crown, must be deported to England for trial. Against his British impassivity, arguments availed no more than birdshot against an ironclad. That night, Her Majesty's ship, the Horrors, sailed for England with me as a prisoner, leaving a lieutenant and a detail of men in charge of the island. Upon our arrival, I was at once thrown into prison, the efforts of the American consul counting for nothing in view of the heinousness of my offense. Nor did the united efforts of the consul, my lawyer, and myself better my condition when, three days later, I was summoned for trial. In vain I recounted the fact that the island was a floating island, belonging to me by right of purchase, and that my mission there was one of peace and enjoyment. In vain the American consul, with convincing logic, argued that, in the first place, I was a free-born American citizen, that, in the second place, I was practically a subject of the Emperor of Brazil, and that, in the third place, the progress of my cruise having been arrested by an act of providence. In this case, the Monroe Doctrine would apply, or words to that effect. In vain, my lawyer, in impassioned language, and with tears streaming from his eyes, referred his lordship to the various treaties of, between great powers, that guaranteed to innocent pleasure-seekers free and unmolested travel on the high seas. In vain he insisted that if, as alleged, the island had become stationary, Great Britain alone was to blame for permitting the existence of obstructions that would discourage navigation and imperil human life. To all these the Queen's Council opposed one overwhelming fact. I had insulted the British flag on an island situated in the exact latitude and longitude where Great Britain had, in former years, claimed a dependency. I was therefore adjudged guilty of a crime on the high seas against the Crown, a crime whose maximum penalty was death at the masthead, 
and whose minimum punishment was confiscation of all property and imprisonment for five years and it was only the fact that at this point the case was reopened by new and important testimony that saved me from languishing in a british jail or even worse for just as the judge was about to pronounce his sentence there rushed into the room a crowd of haggard excited men who proved to be my guests of the celestial island and who now testified the case against me no longer held as that island had disappeared from the testimony of their spokesman it was learned that two days after my departure the island had been visited by a distinguished new york statesman mr dennis mctammony who while cruising in his private yacht had been attracted by the sight of the british flag it appeared also that upon hearing their story mr mctammony had become greatly incensed and had shown so strong a desire to take up his residence with them that he was assigned to a state apartment in the hotel further it was related that upon the next morning the inhabitants of the island had been awakened by a terrific explosion and upon rushing out had found that their cherished resort with all its improvements had been rent asunder as though by some mighty earthquake and was rapidly sinking indeed they had barely escaped to their craft when what remained of the celestial island disappeared beneath the sea realizing the tremendous bearing of this catastrophe upon my trial they had made all haste to england stopping only in an attempt to rescue two of their refugees from the iceberg which had been domesticated as one of the attractions of our lost paradise from these unfortunates who proved to be no other than one of the south american natives and the honorable dennis mctammony they had learned that it was mr mctammony's attempt to remove the celestial island from the british jurisdiction by blowing it off the rocks with dynamite which had brought on the appalling catastrophe what had become of the statesman they could not report however for their offer to take him aboard had been sharply declined by this distinguished gentleman who declared that he preferred even a floating iceberg to the hospitality of the british crown delicately intimating that he was not unprepared for the future since one of the natives who had taken refuge on the iceberg had already died of congestion of the lungs and had been put on ice by him with a view to certain emergencies at this stage proceedings were interrupted by the arrival on the scene pale and emaciated but still bearing the tattered remnants of his country's flag of the official left by captain hopkins in charge of the celestial island only through his corroborative home-made testimony that the island had been blotted out of existence did i obtain my release which however was not granted until his lordship had declared that if ever the island or any part of it should reappear in british waters such reappearance would be adjudged as evidence of my guilt and that i should be liable to immediate arrest for treasonable conduct on the high seas these are the facts of my connection with the celestial island and it is because i live uncertain as to when or where or how that fatal fragment of south american soil may come to light again that i never go to sleep without the roar of the british lion sounding in my ears end of section one read by greg giordano newport ritchie florida